LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. Well, one of the things that I, I tell young songwriters is that um, there's no recipe. The best advice I, I, I can give you is to just say yes, like be available. Um, keep working on your craft and be available. Like just say yes to everything. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chandler Vinoy. Here as always with my co-host, Josh Hunter. Chandler, looking good today, man. Trying to, man. I'm not looking as good as you with your jean jacket. That's true. Yeah. But you still look good. But. How's Tennessee basketball? Man, we just lost last night. So okay. Well, not looking good. Memphis isn't looking too great either. Yeah. The NBA Memphis, though. Looking, Memphis Grizzlies. Looking phenomenal. Looking fine. Looking good. Hey, hey. we're excited today, though, because we have Andrew Peterson, who is an award-winning singer, songwriter, creator of The Rabbit Room, and author of The Wing Feather Saga, and his latest book, Adorning the Dark, which I have right in front of me. My hand is on it. I'm really, it feels really nice. Yeah, it does feel and nice, doesn't Andrew, it? Andrew, so yeah. good to have you Thank here. You. How are you today, man? <laughs> I'm doing good. Yeah. Nice to be with you guys. And he's in the house with us, so this is a yeah. real treat for us. This is true, yeah. So we were just talking, you said, you know, I know in December, you were on the road a lot, you were doing the Behold the Lamb tour, uh-huh. and you actually re-recorded all of that album, correct? Oh, wow. We did, yeah. We It was a, the 20th year of the tour. And so uh, we had, we recorded the album. The, the the tour is older than the album. It took a few years of doing the tour before we were able to, for a whole bunch of reasons, to actually record it. And then toured with this one record year after year after year. And, wow. and we were thinking, how do we commemorate the 20th year of this thing? Because none of us thought we would still be doing it <laughs> two, two decades later. And when I went back and listened to the old record, I was like, whoa, this sounds so different from what we do now. Yeah. That it, it was like, let's just have a party and do the new version of it. Because the truth is... the the, the original record uh, came out when I was between labels. And so it was an indie record, technically speaking. Huh. And so it was all just word of mouth. So I was like, um, my current label was like, let's get behind it and see and give it its official first release, you know? So uh, yeah, we re-recorded the whole thing and it was just like, um, I can't even describe to you how uh, wonderful it was to to make a record. There were 40 people in the room, most of whom were like really um, um, dear, dear friends who wow. with tons of history. And the gospel was the thing that kind of like beats at the heart of the whole record. It wasn't just yeah. some random album. It was an album that like tells the story of the incarnation. And so the fact that all of us kind of circled around that thing to make some music together was just like, I couldn't believe it. I'd never even heard of anything like that happening. So the tour led to the record. It wasn't the record led to the tour. Well, back in, it was in, what year would it have been? It was, it was 2000 was the first year of the tour. But okay. before that, um, when I started working on the songs, uh, I was on a label and, and I was just a young artist, a new yeah. artist on the label. And I had this crazy idea for my second record to do this Christmas concept album that starts in e- Egypt, you know, and like <laughs> works its way forward. And anyway, it was just a weird enough idea that they didn't feel comfortable letting me do it. So we were like, <laughs> okay, we'll go do the tour. And so we did the tour with no record. And the next year I asked the label, can I now record it? And they said, yeah, nobody's going to buy that record. And so, uh, we did three or four years of that before I was finally wow. dropped from my label. And the first thing I did was make that record. <laughs> that's, so that's a really cool story. It, it didn't feel cool at the time. Yeah. It was really frustrating at the time, but looking back, it's easy to see how yeah. it worked out. That took a lot of tenacity yeah. to just go after that again and again. Yeah. I mean, it felt very much like, I mean, the very first year we did it, um, we all had the sense that we were onto something, you know what I mean? Like it was, there was something special about it that was hard to put your finger mm. on what it was, mm. 
but you know, there's a lot of factors. The format of the show, the fact that it's a community of musicians. It's not just my show. It's like Andrew Peterson presents yeah. Behold the Lamb of God yeah. because I knew that it couldn't be just me. It was like mm-hmm. I'm I'm pulling all these people together to do this thing that's bigger than any one of us. Yeah, and um and that kind of uh after I just remember seeing people watch the show the first time going, oh, this is not what we thought it would be. And when we had that sense, I was like, if I could just get the label to the show, they'll see. And so the second year I invited them and they came up and I remember one of the label who was crying. They were like, now we see. And I was like, thank you. Now can I record it? Now can I record it? And they were like, no, nobody's (laughs) nobody's going to buy that record. So anyway, it was, I totally get it. Like I, like I I don't blame them for passing Mm -hmm. on it, but I'm, it, it was frustrating when you're young, you're like, you can see the path ahead and you don't know how many factors there are in play. So all, all you see is this like end game and you're willing to do whatever. Um, but getting other people to, to go on the journey with you is part of the trick. So out of curiosity, you have this smorgasbord of musicians. Do you change every tour, every year? I think I saw the one in Birmingham a few years ago at Valleydale and I think you had a Chapman yeah, 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 with, yeah, yeah, I sure. Remember it was Caleb, one. yeah. Okay, Caleb, but does that change? Uh, so we have, uh, most of the band stays the same, but then we have like rotating special guests. So he, that year he was the guest and guitar player. We, we jokingly call that position the defense against the dark arts professor. <laughs> Every year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, so it's kind of fun. It keeps, it keeps us kind of awake to the tour because there's always a new voice on it. And so with the new record, we actually invited a lot of, a lot of new voices to come sing on it. And so, uh, so this past year uh, was the, um, yeah, it was a new iteration again. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty special thing. Well, if you ever need an announcer, Chandler <laughs> Vinoy, I mean, he sounds like Bradley Cooper over there. I mean, he's got a great, great podcast voice. I still, so just I keep still do not believe that, but it's there. It's, it's not Christmas time, but go check out the album. It is a beautiful, it's incredible. Um, I think, yeah, you for I the t- technically I usually say it's not a Christmas album. It's an album about the incarnation, which happens to be the Christmas story. Well, there you go. So it's, it's like, there are no standards on it really. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, a lot of people tell me they listen to it year round. But if you don't, I don't listen to it year round. We don't play any of the songs from it year round because I want to keep it fresh for December. Yeah. So it, it falls into my like no Christmas music yeah. rule for myself even. So you're also going to hear it a whole lot. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're on yep. tour. You're playing yep. But that's not all uh, that happened last year for you, especially around that time. Adorning the Dark came out. Yeah. Can you just share a little bit of a snapshot of what this book is about? Uh, just the tagline says thoughts on community calling and the mystery of making. Yeah. So uh, the, the quick version is, um, I've read a lot of books on the creative process and, um, I think books on creativity and writing are excellent ways to procrastinate from the writing that you should be doing. <laughs> There's a huge market of, of books out there that are, are sold to people who, who, uh, don't need to know anything else. They just mm. need to get busy writing their book. Mm. Right. I fell into that category with my first novel, um, with the wing feather saga years ago, I thought, okay, before I write my first book, I've got to, I need the answers. I need the information. And, uh, and I talked to an author and said, throw all those books away. All that time you need to be sitting with your butt in the chair, writing the book, Mm. just write. The only way to learn how to write is to write. Mm. Like it is truly a craft that you, you can only learn by doing. And so, um, and there are a few books though, that, that I do recommend to people. One of which is Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. 
in which she has a chapter that says a wonderful chapter on, on, on crappy first drafts. <laughs> Only she doesn't use the word crappy. <laughs> and she says, she, she basically says like every author's first draft is terrible. So release yourself of the pressure to be good the first time. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge one for me. So just get it out on just paper. get it out. And, yeah. and so that unlocked something for me. So the point was, it was just like, stop avoiding the work, get busy and do the thing. And then, uh, Madeline Langle's walking on water is the other one that I, mm-hmm. I usually recommend to people because it's more of a theological look at what the creative act means and so how to think about uh, being a writer or a musician or whatever kind of like artistic thing you're pursuing as a Christian and she like that book shaped a lot of my thinking about my calling helped me kind of sort out helped me articulate to myself what it was that I wanted to do yeah and so uh, of those books though that I usually recommend I don't think I'd come across one that was um, confessional and so, and what I mean by that is, uh, I was making one of my albums several years ago, went into the studio, completely stuck, writer's block, only had like two songs, needed 10, you know, <laughs> and thought that uh, as a way of kind of greasing the wheel and getting the creative juices going, I'm going to journal the process. So I'd come home from the studio feeling discouraged and I would write about it. I would just write, here is exactly what I'm feeling right now and pray in the journal, like ask for help. And, uh, and I kept track of the making of that album in that way. So years, a few years ago, I was looking through some old stuff and I was like, I read some of that old stuff and I was like, well, I don't ever remember reading a book on writing that was this honest about how scary it is mm. and all of the self-doubt you feel that's going into the creative process that that like gets on the in the, into the inside of what's going on in the heart of the person who's trying to make the thing and and I th- wondered if maybe the book would give people courage I thought commiseration is one of the good things about art that it it reminds you that you're not alone by mm. stepping into it and saying hey I, I know what this feels like. This is, and, and that can give you the courage to keep fighting, right? Yeah. And uh, which goes back to the incarnation. That's part of the, the meaning really of the good. incarnation is Jesus steps into it and says, I know what this feels like. Mm. And so the, this book was in part my attempt to step into the battle with the creative person and say, hey, you're probably thinking these things. Um, A, um, you're, you're, this is evidence that you're not crazy. Yeah. And B, Maybe you are crazy, but you're not the only one. Right. right? Yeah, you're not allowed. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in this together. Yeah. So that, that that coupled with a bunch of opinions about how I think things ought to be. So maybe you've been sitting on the fence. You've been wanting to write that song, that album, produce a book, throw every book out except for except for Taylor Torrance. <laughs> I actually Keep I just say in the book several times like if you haven't read Walking on Water put my book down and go read the Madeline Langle book or go read uh, Bird by Bird cuz this is like to me a footnote to a lot of the other yeah. stuff that's going on. It's it's just a it's my story. It's kind of me kind of telling the story of how I fumbled along and mm. tried to figure out how to do this thing. Well, perfect for this conversation yeah. for sure today. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on is we we have a lot of church leaders who are in the church leading, but not a lot of creative guests who can speak into the leadership side of, hey, I'm influencing so many people through my art, through writing, through music. So to hear that story, mm. I think Josh and I are just really excited. So let's let's dive into that. Can you just walk us through a quick overview of how the Lord worked in your life to get you to where you are today? Um, well, it, it started uh, in—I'm a pastor's kid— so I didn't want to be in the ministry <laughs> and, uh, and you know, was a nominal Christian until I was about 19. And part of the, part of the reason that I always suspect, I, I, no, I wouldn't say suspected. I always had a sense that God was there 
And that was never hard for me. I don't ever remember struggling with the idea because the world was too full of beauty. Um, it didn't make, nothing else made sense to me, but, uh, I didn't, I, I believe that God was real, but I didn't really believe that he loved me. Um, because I knew myself and, uh, that was just a tall order. And so it was the music of Rich Mullins that helped me begin to see who Jesus really is, is. And so, um, uh, the ragamuffin gospel, you know, is a book mm-hmm. that meant a lot to him and it is like tailor made for a legalistic pastor's kid who can't believe that God loves him. Yeah. Right. And so that, that the heart of that book is also in some ways, the heart of what I love about Rich Mullins' music is that, um, he just helped me believe that God loved me, but he did so in a way that like, he was a craftsman, like, a like I was just snooty enough of a musician to like, think that all Christian music was bad. <laughs> Until I encountered his music. And I I was like, oh, so he, he's as good a songwriter as James Taylor or Paul Simon. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it in a way that is, that is, um, biblical and really moving. And so it basically, it gave me a, uh, something to shoot for. Cause I, I felt like I grew up with these gifts. I grew up in the church. I, I knew the Bible decently because I'd grown up, you know, VBS and Sunday school and, and went to Bible college eventually and, uh, and, and also cared about music, but wasn't a great musician and wasn't a great singer, but, but, you know, had some sense of how to craft a song, but also wasn't interested in being a staff writer. I, I was interested in the, in the connection of a live show. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to like tell people this story that had changed me. And so he was the one who kind of was like, I looked at and was like, okay, there's a way to do that, yeah. that, that I can get excited about. And, and it's different from a lot of what CCM was at the time. It was the side path and the side path was really intriguing to me. So that's, so I just, I went to Bible college, started writing songs, um, uh, borrowed three grand from my granny and made my, let's go granny, my independent record. Yep. And, uh, and then by the time I got out of college, my wife and I were like, let's try Nashville. So we moved to Nashville and I waited tables for three months at the Olive Garden and, uh, on Bell Road. And, uh, (laughs) And met the Cademan's Call guys, and they invited me on tour, and that was kind of it. Like wow. they, they changed my whole life by this moment of grace by saying, they actually invited me, let me come and open for them before they'd even heard me play. They'd only read my lyrics online, and uh, which was a huge risk on their part. And so, but uh, yeah, went on that tour, and then and that was twenty two or three years ago, and. Okay. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I started writing books. That's awesome. Yeah. So along that journey, we'll, we'll, you kind of mentioned the, when they asked you to go on tour to open for them, was there this pivotal moment that you're like, I look back on that and that changed the way that I viewed, um, writing music, kind of what my, when I was writing books that that changed how you had the outlook on that? Um, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest pivotal moment for me was the encounter with Rich Mullins' music before all that. But then, you know, there were moments where, uh, I, I, moments of grace. That's the thing. One of the things that I, I tell young songwriters is that, um, there's no recipe, you know, there's no, the best advice I, I could give you is to just say yes, like be available, hmm. um, keep working on your craft and be available. Like just say yes to everything. And if this is really what you want to do, it's not going to be easy but that doesn't mean that it's not good <laughs> and, um, and just kind of throw yourself out there. So like we were, um, 
I don't, I, I don't usually talk about this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but there was a, the GMA, you know, the GMA, the gospel music association. Mm-hmm. They used yeah. to have GMA week here in Nashville is a huge conference. Um, and the whole city would kind of like be taken over by this massive, like, you know, the sing conference that the gays yeah. do It's like that times 10. Wow. Only it's all industry stuff. It's not like gospel stuff. It's so it was this crazy thing that happened every year in Nashville and, uh, they had regional, um, uh, smaller conventions around the country. And at each one, they would have a contest, a songwriting contest and a performance contest. And, uh, and if you won the contest in your region, you got invited to Nashville to compete with the other winners. And, <laughs> and if you won that, then you got one of the prizes was like, uh, uh, an hour long consultation with a media, whatever, or with a label executive. And so I was in college at the time. I, I submitted a song and another song for the performance part. And I ended up winning uh, both categories. And I was wow. like, this is going to change everything. <laughs> Moved and k- drove up to Nashville my junior year, I think of college and everybody like friends drove up with us because really? they were like, this is going to change everything. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't win. Like I, I, Carolyn, uh, no, not Carolyn Aaron's, um, Nicole Nordman was, was also in the contest and, and obviously won. She was amazing. And, uh, so all that to say, I thought everything I tried to make happen ended in a dead end. Right. Mm. So like when I, when people talk about networking and like knocking on doors and doing this kind of thing, like, like, uh, I can't trace one good, one like demonstrable thing that came from entering a contest, doing it the industry way. Um, after that was over, I was like, forget this. This is silly. I'm just going to keep writing songs. I'm just going to serve in my community. I'm going to go home. If God wants me to do music, then it is up to him how I get to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so by the time I moved to Nashville, it wasn't because I had some crazy dream. It was because I had a lot of people saying, older people, mentors saying, Hey, we see this gifting in you. And I actually really think that you should go do this thing. Right. Um, so it wasn't just me. It was a community that helped define my calling. Um, and so they helped me kind of sift through what was ambition and pride and helped me see like, yeah, that's always going to be in the mix to some point, but there's also <laughs> this calling that we see in you yeah. and, and, and the Lord is, is gonna, it seems like that's what he wants you to do. So all that to say, um, the Cademan's call thing was just grace. Mm-hmm. It was like, um, I bumped into him I said, Hey, can I open for you? They were like, let's check. We don't have an opener. Sure. Sure. So, so, the, so you're doing all of this hard, hard work. You're running all these horses. Yeah. And then one of them just kind of happens to pull out in front and you just go, Oh, I'll just get on that one. That's kind of how it works. Yeah. That's cool. I, I back up just a little bit. You're talking about ambition and pride. And I think this is such an appropriate topic for any leader because most leaders, then there's different forms of the spotlight, but most mm-hmm. leaders are in the spotlight because either people are watching them over social media or music or just watching them lead right. their team of people, right? So there's a spotlight on a leader all the time. How would you say for young leaders listening, especially in the creative world, man, how do I discern in the spirit what is what is a good, healthy ambition and then what is pride and like sure, yeah. what's driving my motivation that right now? That is a great conversation to have. I uh, So... To go back to Rich Mullins, there's a quote I remember from him that said, if your ambition is to leave a legacy, what you'll leave is a legacy of ambition. Oh, I'll say that again for the folks at home. If your ambition is to leave a legacy, then what you'll leave is a legacy of ambition. Mm. So it gets the cart before the horse. It's like if if you're thinking in terms of what am I going to leave behind for people, um, that's just another kind of idol, right? So if you're thinking it doesn't matter if anybody remembers who I am. 
or even what I did. My goal here is to build God's kingdom in whatever way he wants me to build it and uh, to just be obedient. Like it's not, none of, nothing else is up to you. The only thing that's up to you is day-to-day obedience to him, right? And so I think sometimes we can get in this big like uh, legacy kind of mindset and, and like thinking about influencing people. And it's like, we can't even change our own minds sometimes. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So the thought of changing someone else is like a ridiculously tall order. Um, like our, our job is to steward the gospel, right? right? We, we tell the story and you know, be obedient when the Lord puts people in our path and, and we're supposed to shepherd whatever we're supposed to shepherd. But like, ultimately it's just not up to us. So, so small things like being obedient in small things is, is the trick I think. And so, um, I was talking to, um, somebody maybe three years ago after a show and it was somebody who worked here in Nashville at, some the label or the publishing company that I'm with, I forget what entity. And they came up to me and they were like, oh, I've, I've been wanting to meet you for a while. And they were like, yeah, you do the, you write novels and you write, you know, working on a nonfiction and you do the rabbit room ministry and you do the <laughs> Behold the Lamb thing and you tour like, well, how in the world do you do, do all these things? And you're a dad and a husband and whatever. And I remember as he was saying that feeling proud. <laughs> of myself, right? Yeah, I, I felt keep going, yeah. keep going. right. I felt cool, <laughs> yeah, and I was yeah, pretending yeah. like I was like, "Oh shucks!" But I, I, mm-hmm. I, the Holy Spirit lifted a little veil inside yeah. my heart and was like, "Hey, look at that little rock of pride that's in there." And uh, and I, I really did feel this. Talk about pivotal moments. That was one for me. Is like, you can your motives are never going to be perfectly pure, so don't let that stop you from doing good work. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the disclaimer. Mm. Um, but the, but in that moment I was like, I felt the whisper of the spirit say careful, mm. like, and then, and that also kind of drew attention to the fact that, um, there was a, it wasn't just pride. It was a combination of ambition and fear. Mm. So for me, it was fear of either not providing for my family, um, like I'm pastor's kid, so I grew up pretty poor. So I have this like looming ghost in the back of my mind that if I stop working, it's all going to fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the opposite of trust. Um, I've only ever had one provider and uh, I am not that provider, mm-hmm. right? And so reminding myself of that truth, but just kind of realizing that a lot of the projects that I've taken on were taken on not because necessarily I had been called or led by the Holy Spirit to do them. They, they There was, um, it was fear of not having enough and I've got to spend a whole lot of plates in order to pay the bills because I'm a self-employed songwriter in Nashville yeah. and I got to make it happen. Or ambition, which is leaving a legacy, leaving a name for myself. It's like, I want yeah. people to see me and prove to myself that I exist um, and or leave a mark, all this baloney. <laughs> and so, so I told the guy in that moment, I remember saying, oh, don't be impressed by me. Wow. Like that is not impressive. Like, like it is a, a deep brokenness that has probably gotten me into the, all of these situations where I've almost had nervous breakdowns and I've gone into depression and my wife has had to struggle and like all kinds of things that yes, are broken. Uh, the Lord redeems those things. Like yeah. it ends up, um, working out, uh, to his glory because it's how he works. But at the same time, if I'm not learning from that, then that's, that's bad news. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, that that was a pivotal moment for me where I was like, I'm going to take a step back and slow way down and try to ask myself and my community, starting with my wife and then my kids and then my broader community, church, whatever, um, if this is something I had to pursue. Like, 
Like, um, and if it is, then I'll do it and I'll work my tail off till I'm dead doing it. But I don't want to do it if, if it's because I'm afraid or I'm trying to leave a mark. Um, anyway, that's the goal anyway. Yeah. I still don't have it down. Let's talk. Listen, stop the podcast, rewind the beginning of that question again and listening. That was some really good wisdom. I appreciate, appreciate sure. you being vulnerable yeah. and talking through all that yeah. stuff and not to continue hanging out and any quote unquote shortcomings or mistakes, but oh, looking back, I'm happy to talk about those. <laughs> those are easy. Looking back as a leader, no matter if you're leading a band or a creative process and writing table, or just an organization and processes and systems, you're still a leader, right? And you make mistakes. So looking back, just really practically, what what's one of the mistakes that come to your mind, like in a leadership role that you're like, yeah, it was a big mistake. Not going to do that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- there's a couple that come to mind um, on a practical level. One is like communicating um, with, with the people that I'm working with, like uh, my hopes or expectations or like the, what, what I see their future as, you know, I think that there can, there it's, it's easy to avoid the conflict, um, or avoid the, the, the necessary conversations. This actually just happened a week or so ago. Somebody at the rabbit room, we talked, we were talking about like how it's easy to say, yeah, we really care about you and your future without demonstrating that there are things in place that are actually going to yeah. take care of those people in their future. Here's right? the actions that. Yeah. So like, that. Hey, we, we mean what we say. Yep. And so that's, that's a big thing that like, I think, you know, there have been some, there's some moments in my history with my bandmates that I think I was like, yep, I should have made it clear to those people that I was invested Mm. Um, or asked them like the, the way we are going to work together is going to change depending on how invested you want to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's, yeah. that's part of it. The, the other big thing is, is the, um, especially in my job and I'm, I'm guessing this would be true for working in a church or whatever is that, um, so for example, the Christmas tour, I've talked about this before, but the the Christmas tour is a bunch of friends, right? So I'm out on tour on a bus with 12 of my oldest, dearest friends, most of whom we came up together in the music business. And so, you know, there's, there's no hierarchy there, Mm. but on that bus, uh, somebody's paying for the bus, right? (laughs) Somebody's manager is managing the checks that are going out to people Mm -hmm. and somebody's talking to the, and I'm the guy, right? So in that situation, I'm, I'm dealing with the, the awkwardness of, um, carrying a way bigger invisible burden than anyone else on the bus is carrying. Does that make sense? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. And so I didn't think of it in those terms. I'm like, I just want to be friends. Can we just be friends? <laughs> yep. And there were times when I felt this, I would just like go into a closet and cry because mm-hmm. I'm like, what's wrong with me? Like, why don't I feel like I can enter into the circle of friendship and party and have a great time after the show and, and laugh with everybody else. And, uh, there, I guess it's just that I'm, I'm a loser. You know, I, I'm a four on the Enneagram, so I go dark fast, right? <laughs> so my head is full of, my imagination is potent enough for me to ma- invent a whole lot of stories about what my friends think of me and blah, yeah. blah, blah. When that's just arrogance, they're, they're probably not thinking of me at all <laughs> in the best way. And so, uh, so that after years of the Christmas tour, I was just like, what's wrong with me? And when, and a counselor helped me get to the bottom of like leadership roles. He was just like, like in that moment, you are doing something different than everybody else. Yeah. So you have to find a way to like communicate to them this is why I'm feeling this this thing yep. and uh, also own it just kind of be like I'm I uh, I gotta go rest now 
you guys have fun yep. and be okay with that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and they did see the other side of it is I don't know that everybody in the band saw me that way. I think they were kind of like, what's wrong with Peterson? He's yeah. so tired. <laughs> and it's like, at some point we had to have a talk and go, Hey, so just so you know, this is what's going on in my mind when yep. I'm doing the show or whatever. So that was a big one. And one of the things that helped me was, uh, I was on tour with Stephen Curtis Chapman 10 years ago. Was it that long ago? Did a couple tours with him when I was in the middle of all that. And it, it, it was the first time I had opened for anybody in years. Like I had been the headliner in my own thing just because I'd rather play a smaller show and headline than I like. I actually, <laughs> I, li- I, I actually <laughs> like to play music. So, so playing 30 minutes a night is kind of like hard for me. And so, uh, but it was Stephen Curtis. So of course you're like, well, yes, sir, did I will. He mullet. He did not have oh, the mullet. Okay. No, it was post, post mullet day. Still good. But yeah. he's amazing. And so I was on that tour with him and I watched him work. I, I would. I didn't have many responsibilities. I was up there to open, and so yeah. I was like seeing him just do his thing, and it was like, oh, uh, that's what it's happening. And I, I remember telling him one night, I was like, just so you know, I see you working your tail off, like you were doing a lot. And he like you know, looked at me like, thank you for saying that. <laughs> and, and I realized that sometimes, like you don't want to like only hang out with other people who are in the same situation yeah. that you're in, but but there should be some circle of friends in your life who who are pretty intimate with that the particulars of what your your position does that make sense yes and yeah. so that it would be really bad if that was the only people you hung out yeah. with which is, you would never see the other side yeah, yeah. You're, you wouldn't be reminded that you're a knucklehead yeah. you know you need to go to church <laughs> with people who are not impressed with you that's good, that's good and word. so uh that's good. so that's that's the other side of it but it man it was tremendously helpful to just kind of own it and be like oh yeah this is this doesn't make me special it just means that this is the this is the job god's given me to do right now yeah, I'm so thankful that you you shared that story. We were talking with uh, Bobby Grunewald, the founder of the YouVersion Bible app. Okay. And he was talking about the same thing. They started this company and they didn't really say the roles of leadership. And it's just like, we're all on the same hierarchy here. And at some point, like it finally... Sounds like an office episode, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> Who was the assistant to the Jim, regional manager? Jim and right, Michael right, yeah. when they were both managers, yeah. yeah. And it, it kind of came to a point where it was, we have to understand who is actually the president at that, in that situation for you, it's, Hey guys, this is a tour that I'm leading. I, I feel the weight of a responsibility of this. I'm also leading. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. I, yeah. and, and even the behind the scenes there. And what you said is there are times where you do need to talk to others who are walking through exactly what you're walking through right. and get that, um, shared so much wisdom. Knowledge. And again, commiseration, that's the, like knowing that you're not alone, knowing that your particular struggles, uh, are, are familiar to other yeah. people is so helpful. Yeah. Like it's just a, like a, I just it's easy for me to get off into a corner and just feel like I'm a freak and like why can't I? Everybody else is fine. Why am I the one that's whatever? And then when you find that one other soul who looks you in the eye, what? Well, and I hope I'm not being too. Uh, I'm going to get in the car and go, you said too much. Um, but Caleb Chapman, that year that he was on mm-hmm. the tour, um, he was such a blessing to me because we would get on the bus and that's when I would be the at the end of the marathon, right? After the show, after the meeting, meet and greets and all that kind of stuff. Get on the bus and I'd just be like so tired and everybody else would be like, hey, you know, what are we going to watch tonight? That kind of like hanging out. And I just yeah, was like, standing there like a zombie yeah. while that was happening. And I would see Caleb across the bus among all the people. And he would just look at me and kind of give me a thumbs up, like a, <laughs> hey, good. you okay? Kind yeah. of thumbs up. Yeah. And I told my counselor that. And he was like, well, do you think maybe it's because Caleb grew up in a house where he watched his dad? Wow. Do, like mm-hmm. he, he's familiar with wow. that particular thing. Yeah. So again, it was just like, 
knowing that you're not alone is, is, is massive. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. one of the, one of the, sorry Chandler to cut you off. One of the things that I've learned so much this past year through some counseling is like how important it is to be fully known by people around oh, yeah. you. And mm-hmm. not everyone, right? But like, mm-hmm. you don't have to say every single thing that's true, but like, yeah being fully known by your inner circle is so healing because mm. you do realize, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not alone right now. People yeah. do know me and they yeah. accept me even though they fully know me. So I think that's so cool. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. It's one of my biggest fears mm-hmm. is that I was just telling my son this the other day that like it's, there's an irony to the fact that one of my big fears is that I mean, once people know me, they'll be disappointed. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, the irony is that God gave me a job that allows me to dip in and perform and then get out before anybody really sees me screw here's, up. Here's the highlights. Right. I'll go back. Yeah. And so then the band sees the whole thing. My family sees the whole thing. And the truth is the people who have known me best are the ones who stuck the longest. Right. Um, and so the enemy, I think, exploits that fear in a huge way. They like makes you, tells you the lie that if they knew what you were thinking, uh, they wouldn't like you anymore, yeah. which is why I fight back by being... Uh, vulnerable in podcasts. You know what I mean? Like you just <laughs> got to kind of be like, like yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. going to tell you this is the deal. There's no yeah. whatever. Um, and I told my son this. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not going to tell this story, but it's a good story. <laughs> good. And, I, and I love my son and he's very wise and he yeah. loves me well. So that's cool. I was just going to say when you were, where you said you want to know that somebody else is walking through what you've walked through. I think of this C.S. Lewis has a quote on friendship, but I think mm-hmm. it goes to this. It's like yeah. when you're talking through a subject and you just look at each other and you're like, you two. Yeah, like, I thought I was the only one. I thought yeah. I was the only one, mm-hmm. you too. And for for friendship, it's things that you enjoy and you deeply love. But for for going through struggles, it's that, that you can yeah. bond over that as well. I would say one more quick thing while we're on the subject is yeah. one of the things I had to learn from a leadership standpoint was that I could, it wasn't necessarily helpful to go to the team with these struggles. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, after the fact, yes. But like when you're in the heat of it, it doesn't do anybody any good to like lean into the the team and be like, I'm feeling all these things. <laughs> yep. Like, uh, I, that's the, when I call Jamie, I call my wife or I call mm-hmm. Steven or I yeah. call the people that are outside of the circle and say, Hey, I'm going through this thing. And they know, and they give me the courage to go, all right, there's work to do right now. And you go back in and, and then, you know, later, once the, once the thing is passed, you're able to like share Hey man, remember that thing? Like, here's what was going on. Yeah. We had this thing we had to do. Um, and so you don't want to clog it all up with being so like in the moment to open with it because you don't know the story yet. Mm-hmm. Um, one Walter Wongren Jr. is this author that I love and he was a pastor and wrote quite a few memoirs about being a pastor. And in most of the stories he tells, he's a villain. He's like the one who's the knucklehead. <laughs> and by the end of it, he's the one with the lesson to learn. And somebody asked him uh, one time in a Q&A, like, how do you know when you sh- you're supposed to share the story of what happened to you from the pulpit? Mm. And, uh, and he was like, oh, you have to wait until you have enough distance from it to see the end of the story. And then you share it with people, right? And I know that I have uh, made the mistake before of like oversharing on stage. When I'm in something, I'm bleeding on the audience. And wh- what happens then is you turn the audience into your counselor. Mm. And that's not a concert anymore. That's like <laughs> a really unhealthy place to be. Yeah. And so if you're a pastor or you're a songwriter, you're in a position of leadership, like one day the thing you're going through is probably going to make a great anecdote or story that's going to edify the people around you, yeah. but you don't know the end of it yet. Yeah. So don't tell the story yet. You just need to tell some you know, your counselor, your wife, whatever, while you're going through it. But I don't think that like public consumption is the place to work that out. Yeah, that's really good. Well, before we get to the next question, let's just take a really small moment, really small, really (laughs) short, and hear from our sponsor. 
On this podcast, we hope to equip our listeners with the best resources to help churches thrive. So if you're looking at launching a thriving church in a rented venue, I encourage you to check out the team at Portable Church. Portable Church Industries equips churches meeting in alternative venues with total solutions so you can launch strong, be reproducible, and thrive in your communities. For over 25 years, they have partnered with church planners and multi-site leaders, mastering creative, intelligent, effective, portable church solutions. So you and your team stay focused on the things that matter, building disciples. See what this looks like by visiting portablechurch.com slash lifeway. Once again, that's portablechurch.com slash lifeway. Now, back to the podcast. So John Maxwell says that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And through your music and writing, your influence is reaching so many. And so just first off, what have you learned about influence and leadership through your music and writing? And then what advice would you share with a young leader listening who is wanting to create music, to create art, to maybe write, to influence others? Well, you should stop trying to think of yourself as an influencer. <laughs> for starters. I don't know if I agree with that quote. I, I think leadership is obedience, mm. um, not influence. Like um, it's God's job to influence people. And he's called us in to be a, some, a, a footnote in that story. But like, we can't think of like, yeah, this feels gross to me to think mm. uh, when anytime, like I get invited to something or whatever, and, and it, it describes the people there as influencers. I'm always kind of like, there's an eye roll in me. Wow. Like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know? And so I, I don't know. I just think that like it, it gives us a little bit too much credit. Yeah. Uh, when, when really, I think that you just like, no matter what your role is, like the, the spiritual formation of obedience is kind of what we're going for. Like we have a King and that King has called us into his service. And our job is to just learn what it means to obey. And, uh, if you want to know God, do what he says. Yeah. Right. And so that is it, like, ideally you're, you would, you would be doing that, um, so much so that the the question of whether or not you're influencing people wouldn't even cross your mind. So, you know so I mean? let's flip the question here because sure. I like how you did that, and let's even use. <laughs> you like how I did that? No, 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 yeah, I, no that, I like how your your heart is in that. Sure. So, what would you say when you're obedient to the Lord? Uh-huh. What is the fruit that you have seen in other people's lives because of it mm. through your art? Um. Well, I think. Uh, Encouragement, and I mean that in the in the uh, in the literal sense, like, as in giving people courage. Um, that that's the thing that I hope happens with my music, and uh, and yeah, the, like because music has been such a music and story. I would say novels to art in general um, has has this ability to use kind of scatter scatter the seeds wild mm-hmm. into the world, and then. Uh, when the right song comes to you at the right time, I think we could all remember a moment like that when you're driving down the road and the song came on the radio and it was just like, this feels like it was meant to happen right now. I, I, I see the world differently now because of it. Um, or a movie that you saw or a book, whatever that's that. I love that. I love the possibility that is inherent in music. So I, I think part of what I'm saying is like, I really want as many people as possible to hear my songs. Right. That's why I'm on a record label. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was like, I could maybe make it an, as much or more money as an independent artist or 
sign up with the label. And the question is, who, who, in which scenario are more people going to hear the songs? Yep. I went with the label side, right? And so, but, but like from an influence standpoint, it's really none of my business. I'm like my job is to like create the thing, try to be mm-hmm. obedient in the creation of the thing, and then you fling it out into the world and, you know, work with a team of people that's going to make it as available as possible uh, so that when, when people hear the thing, you, you know, there's a, the possibility of that. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I was talking earlier about availability. Like you just, you want to be as available as possible to say yes to everything that people are calling you into. And, um, and I think the, of music the, as the same way. Like I, I, I hope that these things are happen, but those, that's not at all the front of my mind. Like I want God to be glorified by, um, my life. Right. What, what I'm making is, is like, corollary to that it's not it's there's it's not on top of it does that make sense oh yeah yeah i heard a quote i I think it was yesterday somebody said people don't follow someone because of skill they follow someone with substance someone they can trust and it's a little bit different when you're listening to a song but just thinking through like the life that you're living through obedience somebody seeing that you're obedient and that you can be trustworthy is is huge and and influencing, leading is somebody, they just want to see substance. And for us as believers, it's, Hey, I'm following the Lord so you can follow me. Well, I would say too, I, just to clarify, when I say obedience, that doesn't mean that like, I'm super obedient. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't at all. Like I am we're in the, in the context of leadership converse, conversation, like the, the whole journey of what it means to be a human, I think, um, is, um, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And when you lo- read the gospels, Jesus was always talking about the will of the father. Like he was always talking about it. Like he was completely dialed into the will of the father. And obviously there's all kind of Trinitarian conversation we could ha- have about how that works. But like, that's my ultimate goal, right? And so to be so in love with God, the father, with Jesus, that like, that, that, um, my failure or or success in obeying him is secondary to the desire to try to Mm. obey him. Does that make sense? And so obedience in little things, I just think it's so easy to get in this conversation about like, here's a great story. Can I tell you, share a story. I've, I've used this before on other podcasts, but not this one. Um, (laughs) So I was reading the Lord of the Rings for for like the fourth time, I think, which makes it a book I've read more than any other book, I think other than maybe, uh, good night moon or something. Um, but the, uh, I was reading it and do you, do you, have you read it before or you know the movies? Oh yes. Okay. So you, the, it's tremendous. And Sam, I, this, this particular time I was reading the book, um, it was toward the end of the story and it was when Sam Frodo thinks that Frodo is dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, Shelob has yep. stung yep. him and Sam thinks, well, I've got to take the ring and I've got to carry it to, um, Mount Doom. And, um, and there's that moment where he's, you know, the ring begins to work on him. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. So the, the, the day that I read that I was on a plane and I was, uh, it was the night, uh, the morning after the Paul Simon, um, farewell tour show in Nashville. This was just a year and a half, two years ago. And so it was Paul Simon's life. He's one of my songwriting heroes. It was this um, incredible show, 
what a catalog of hits that the guy's written and just deeply moving songs. And I, every time I go to see him or James Taylor or some band that I really love, there's a little bit of envy in me, right? I'm looking at it and I'm going like, oh man, what would my life have looked like if I had chosen to go mainstream? You know, if I, I probably wouldn't have had a career is the honest answer. But, but I had this feeling of envy and I was like, man, it would be amazing to stand in an arena and to sing my songs and have 10,000 people singing along. Gosh, wouldn't that feel great? And uh, those guys don't know how easy they have it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so the next morning I get on a plane, I'm flying to Colorado for a show for, the, for about 180 people and uh, at Glen Erie. And um, the, I happened to read the passage um, where Sam gets the ring. And I don't know if you remember this, but it's amazing because Sam says he begins, begins to imagine himself as a commander of armies, little Samwise, right? <laughs> and uh, and, he, and he looks out over this valley in Mordor or whatever, and he sees just death and destruction. He's like, the gardener in him was like, I could turn this valley into a green valley. You know, mm-hmm. there would be gardens as far as the eye can see. And, uh, and he was so full of pride and ambition. And then it says, when he thought of gardening, then his hobbit sense returned to him, and he remembered his little garden at the Shire. Mm. And he realized that he didn't want to be in charge of other men's hands. He only wanted to be in charge of his own and that he only wanted to care for what had been given to him. That's really good. And so that's what I'm getting at. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that that principle that you can want a good thing, like Sam wanted a good thing, but the ring, but the, the lesson in that that I think Tolkien has for us is that the... Uh, the good thing is a bad thing if it's not the thing that God has given you to do. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the so I could want my songs to be like on mainstream radio and blah 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 blah, and a lot of good could come from that. But like if that's not what I'm called to, and I'm being disobedient to the calling that I have, then that that seemingly good thing is now poisoned by mm-hmm. that ambition. And so I I was so I went onto the stage in Colorado and I was like, here's my garden. This is yep. the little Shire garden that God has given me. And it's tremendous. And I'm so thankful. Like I, it was like the, the confluence of all of these little moments taught me a massive lesson. And so I think that's the, that's the thing that I'm getting at when we keep talking about influence and whatever. It's like, like we just got our garden that our, our, we contend. And, you know, the seeds of that garden could end up making turning a valley green one day. But that's, that's not up to you. Makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. All right. And the first one is this. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office, all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, so it depends on what I'm working on. So if I'm working on a book, then the ideal day, daily routine is to wake up and uh, not let my s- eat breakfast. I wake up at uh, seven-ish, whatever. In the summer, see, it's, it's always changing <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a gardener and I have we have property, and so and when wait, when, this is not an analogy anymore. No, no, no analogy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure I actually do. Like, yeah. We live in the country, and, and I garden, and we have property that I love to take care of. I'm a beekeeper and stuff, and so like in the summer, in the in the spring and summer, like I wake up early. Like I yeah. love being up as the sun is getting up mm-hmm. and there that's the best time of the day when it's hot, you know, and to get out and work. And so that's how that works. But if I'm, if you're talking strictly creative work, the thing that pays the bills, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> Keeps the, bees going. Yeah. the, the thing that worked best for me was to not eat, let myself eat lunch until I'd hit a 2000 word goal. Wow. So I wake up, have breakfast, go to the coffee shop or to my study and, and just, and have an app that turns off all internet connection. Yep. Won't let me turn it back on even if I change my mind. And, uh, <laughs> And I don't let myself off the hook. So sometimes that means not eating lunch till two, but it yeah. just forces me to like have a word count that I get five days a week. That's, that's kind of, the, and then after that, it's just emails and yeah. poking around and doing the thing that I got to do. But, but that one of the things about being a singer songwriter 
and an author is that your that your life is always changing. Like mm-hmm. when you're on the road, life looks very different from what yep. it looks like at home. And when you're on vacation or not on vacation, but you're in the, like the dead lame duck period between projects, you still got stuff to take care of because you got to do podcasts like this one. <laughs> um, uh, that, so uh, honored. Yeah, I know. Right. So anyway, that's, that's a long answer. My answers are so long. It's so okay. Sorry. I love it. It's okay. So Josh and I are reading a book right now called Deep Work. Have you heard of the book? I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It talks about blocking out time on your calendar. So he talks about three and a half to four four-hour blocks of time to knock out the the main thing that you've got to get done. Like, Mm. what is the one thing that's going to move the needle? So hearing you... That sounds great. Like, you're setting that 2,000-word limit before Uh uh, you eat lunch. You're doing that. I'm excited for this question because I'm really curious as to what the answer is going to be. What is your favorite personality test? Oh, uh, the Enneagram. The Enneagram. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm, I was a holdout for a long time. <laughs> uh, and then I would jokingly say, people would be like, what number are you? And I would say, I'm whatever number hates the Enneagram. And, <laughs> and they four. were like, they would all say four, <laughs> right? And so I was, and there's so many things in our lives that, that I have laughed at and been like, man, I am just textbook for, and my daughter is though. But that, and she's part of the reason that I got into it is because she, you know, she was, she, she's a lot like me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I can understand a little bit more about what's going on inside her, my own heart and maybe her heart too, then that, that would help us to know each other um, or help help us through some of these dips. My wife is a two. So the combination of, of a two who wants to fix everything and help mm-hmm. and be a, and a four who doesn't really want to be fixed. We want to, we want to feel the sorrow, you know, it was it, like, once we kind of thought of our relationships in those terms, it was tremendously helpful. Yeah, so that's cool. whether or not it's right, it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What's an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? An unusual. Oh, I would say uh, the, the beekeeping gardening thing. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just yesterday. It was warm enough to go out and weed some, and uh, I had a staff meeting, rabbit room staff meeting. Uh, it was Monday in the morning, and I walked out of the meeting, and I had to answer a bunch of emails, and I just reached this mental block, and I looked out the window, and I was like, I'm going to go remind myself that the world is tangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's especially easy when we, we, we live in our heads, you know, on screens, there's a lot of cerebral stuff that's happening and, and that, you know, there's some realness to that, but, yeah. but it's no more real than, um, than, uh, feeding your bees or, <laughs> or whatever. It's like any reminder that you have in your life that, that the world that God made is good and beautiful and, and, uh, an excuse to get away from TV screens is huge. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Favorite app on your phone. Favorite app on my phone? Oh, uh, it's I'm not using it right now, but it's probably the Ordnance Survey app, which um, in England there are these uh, OS maps, Ordnance Survey maps that have been around for 100 years or whatever, but they're extremely detailed maps, and they show you where every church ruin and every stone wall and every property line. Interesting. And they show you where the footpaths are. So wow. I don't know if you know this, but you can walk across the, the entire country, across people's private land, and, and um, it's, uh, it's like the best invention in the world. And so whenever I'm in England, we go, like this summer, I'm going, I'm walking Hadrian's Wall with a friend of mine, which is this 86-mile um, path that leads you through the farmland and the like like I don't think England is any prettier than Nashville uh, but in Nashville, if I walk across somebody's property, I'm going to get shot in <laughs> yeah, the face. That's a no-no. <laughs> so in England, they have this culture where it's like, this is yeah. everybody's island, so wow. you can walk Man, across why it. why can't we have that here? Isn't that amazing? I know. It's the best. So the OS map is the iPhone version. So like you can like be anywhere in the country and find your way wow. to the pub down the street or the coffee house or whatever. And most of the time, it's, it's across a beautiful pasture. Wow. That's cool. That's, That's really cool. neat. It's amazing. What has been the best book that you've read in the past six months? Lord of the Rings, maybe? 
Well, it was just over six months ago. <laughs> um, that's that's my go-to answer most of the time. Um, I just read a book um, that my friend Dave gave me called The Lion's Gate, which is written by Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, which is a great mm. book on writing. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's, it's about the Six-Day War, the is- Israeli Six-Day War that happened in the 60s. Yeah. And uh, I have such complicated feelings about how all that plays into mm-hmm. what's going on in the world. Yeah. But it was a fascinating firsthand account from told from the perspectives of all of these soldiers and commanders, uh, how this tiny, tiny little country in six days trumped like half the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, I was about to say I'm not a war guy, but 1917 was, was, I was, I was one of ask, my very yeah. favorite movies of last year. That, Have I, you both seen it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to see it. A Hidden Life. Have you seen A Hidden Life? So the two great uh-huh. movies that came out last year were A Hidden Life, which was about Franz Jager's daughter, who was a uh, dissenter in in Austria, mm-hmm. he he died to not swear loyalty to Hitler. Wow! And he was a, he did it because he was a Christian, and so it's the, the best. My brother called it the most theologically satisfying film he'd ever seen, and I agree. I've seen it twice. Wrecked me. So, A Hidden Life and then 1917, I, and Knives Out were the best movies. Uh, Knives of, Out, of, that was of, great of, too. Of last year. I need to look at Hidden Life. So, I do love war stories because yeah. I think that they. I love murder mysteries too. And the, the, my second answer to the book question was P.D. James' a book called The Murder The Murder Room, which I love murder mysteries because I think they like like they drill down and help you see. Uh, human nature, the yep. brokenness of human nature, but also our, our longing for justice and our, our seeking for truth. Like a murder mystery has all, is a very Christian way to tell a story, according to some Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the honorary yep. inklings. Um, but anyway, war stories do the same thing. Like you get these pictures of like ultimate, uh, the horror of war. No, for sure. And, and in 1917, the, the great scene at the end, mm-hmm. oh my word. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler He's alert. running... Like I, it's in the preview, so I'm not going <laughs> to yeah. totally destroy. Seen it. But there's the the charge, yeah. and he's trying to save lives, and he's running across the lines while everybody else is charging. That's intense. Wow. That is an intense. So it's an intense thing to see. But the metaphor that's playing yeah. out is you've got a bunch of people running one direction to fight and kill and defend, you know, whatever. Yep. And his job was to run counter to that thing mm. and mm. risk his life to save lives. And I thought I was like, man, what a beautiful. Uh, story, but a way to think about what it is that I think we as Christians are called to. So good. So when you, you're a writer of, of fiction, when you do that, do you, you're reading like a murder mystery. Do you start thinking like, Oh, what if I were to write one of these? Oh, I would be dying to write. <laughs> Man, I'm dying. I've, I've, yeah, I've been talking for years about yeah. writing a murder mystery. I would probably need to like come up with a pen name so that I could, <laughs> I could use salty language. We'll Please see. let us know. <laughs> Last question for you. What one sentence advice would you give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Um, I'm going to steal this from Trip Lee. Um, do you guys know Trip? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I met him a few years ago and, uh, I didn't know who he was and we talked for an hour. I said, what do you do for a living? He said he was a pastor. And so we talked about his church. And then after the conversation, I was like, so who's Trip Lee anyway? And I was like, oh my word. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, blew my mind. See, he was still impressive, but he, somebody asked him on stage, how do you stay humble? And he said, um, he's like, I read my Bible. He was like, I think if you are, uh, honestly reading scripture, it's almost impossible to get arrogant. Mm. Um, and that's, that's an oversimplification, I think. But the point, the point is, um, uh, the scripture is, is, uh, Tremendous, like yeah. like we as much as I love the Lord of the Rings and the the way you know a good story uh, is a bunch of lines intertwining. Uh, when I was in Jerusalem a few years ago, uh, for the first time, I was at the Western Wall and couldn't stop crying. And for the whole, whole lot of reasons, there's just like a an emotional energy that's in that place. But but as an author, 
um, I was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, this is as close as I can get to where the temple used to be, where the temple tore into. This is, um, really close to where, uh, Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac and the ram was caught in the thicket and the sacrifice was provided, you know, the substitute sacrifice is on the same mountain where the temple ended up being built is on the same mountain where Jesus was crucified is on the same mountain where Jesus resurrected. And the, the lines intertwining of all of those things coming together in this shimmering knot that is the person of Christ was so overwhelming from a story standpoint that it, it just, I, it broke me and I was, I was weeping. Um, and so Part of the reason that was as significant a moment uh, to me was that my parents made me read my Bible when I was a kid. Yep. Mm-hmm. I had to do memory verses. Yep. <laughs> I, had to, I had to go through and like say the, you know, the books of the Old Testament and then the New Testament and like, like the very rote memorization followed by uh, n- not seeing how it really mattered. And then having this encounter with Jesus that showed me that like the Bible was the story that I was always telling the story I was always looking for and that he was at the heart of it. So I don't know. I just like if you, I said earlier, if you want to know God, then do what he says. Um, but the other way to do it is to pay attention to the story that he told yeah. us, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and is still telling us. So I would just, uh, like, honestly read your Bible. It's, it's the most Sunday school answer you can possibly imagine. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, but, it's true, uh, yeah. but yeah, I, and I, and I think that will nudge you closer and closer to, um, um, being a, a follower of Jesus and not just an admirer of him. I think John seventeen seventeen sanctify them in the truth for the word is truth. So it's a great place to go. Andrew, thanks so much yeah. for being on with us today and t- sharing about your leadership journey. And for you listening, go check out Adorning the Dark. Go listen to Behold the Lamb. Such good stuff. Uh, and if this has been helpful to you in your leadership journey, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to help other leaders like yourself find the podcast. See, See you guys next week. later. Peace. Peace.